Well, we're working our way through 1 Thessalonians, and we're almost to the end. Actually, we're starting the last chapter of this letter today, and then we'll finish it next week, and then on to 2 Thessalonians. So we'll still be in this series for another maybe five or six weeks or so. Um, and just before Christmas, we'll, we'll wrap this up, and then we'll transition to a, Christ, a short Christmas series of a couple weeks, and... Uh, and then we'll go on from there. But uh, we're finishing up in the next couple of weeks this first letter to the Thessalonians. And today uh, we're seeing uh, a subject that is quite uh, interesting and, and also uh, quite confusing at times for us. We're, we're going to be looking at the subject of Christ's second coming, his, his return. And we know that this is a hot topic in our time. It's always been actually a hot topic uh, in every time, um, every generation that has lived since Christ's ascension has asked these questions. And uh, we're seeing Paul in this letter address some of the confusion and the questions for this Thessalonian church around these issues, around what happens when Christ returns. And we know there's a lot of confusion in this particular church in Thessalonica uh, around these things because Paul addresses it here. He also addresses it again in the second letter to the Thessalonians as well. So we're going to talk about this. And I think what's helpful is that every, every group of Christians has wrestled with these questions and have had uh, confusion about them. But I think as we see what Paul writes to this church, we're getting uh, some clarity on what we need to understand. We don't see in the Bible, a massive amount of specific detail. But what we do see uh, is what we need to know. And so we're going to get into this today. And let's just start in verse 1, because I think this, this lays out the main point for us today. It says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. Now, that phrase, times and seasons, is a reference to the second coming of Christ. We, we see Jesus use this phrase, uh, this times and the seasons. We see the, the angels at Jesus' ascension in the book of Acts chapter 1 <clears throat> use this kind of language to talk about the, the ultimate fulfillment of Christ's work and his, his second coming where he will establish his kingdom once and for all. And so Paul begins this section of the letter by saying, concerning all these times and seasons, you don't have anything to be written to you. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that they don't need anything written to them because they know what, what all this means? Well, no, I don't think that's that's obvious because he's going to explain things to them in just a moment. I think what he's saying here is very simple, that they don't need anything to be written to them about the times or seasons because they don't need to know those things and what they need to know, they know. And that's true for us. Concerning the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. And that probably frustrated this church quite a bit, because right? obviously they're corresponding through distance. Um, you know, it takes months in, in this time to get letters from one another. 
And they probably sent some questions back with Timothy when Timothy went to Thessalonica and then reported back to, this, to Paul what the questions of this church were. One of those questions was clearly, when is all of this going to wrap up? When is Jesus going to come back? How does this all happen? And Paul just sort of throws some cold water on it and goes, ah, you don't need to know. I, that might be frustrating to you, but it's the truth, and we just got to live with it, okay? Just got to live with it. We're not going to be told everything we want to know. And, and I don't think it's helpful for us to try to go through some crazy Bible origami to make things say things that we want them to say. I don't think it's helpful for us to do uh, all this weird Bible math and try to add everything up. And <clears throat> that's not what we're supposed to do. We have no need to have anything written to us concerning the times or seasons. That's a really clear thing in the Bible. It's not just here. It's also in Matthew 24. It's, it's all over. Um, but despite that, despite the fact that it's an abundantly clear reality that the Bible doesn't give us the timing of Jesus' return, and in fact, even the things that surround his return are not blatantly clear, they use uh, the Bible in the book of Revelation uses a form of literature that is meant to be a little bit cryptic and not, not in a way that we have to unlock things, but just because we don't need to be consumed with all the little details and nuance. The Bible is very clear about that. But despite that, that doesn't mean there haven't been attempts throughout history to try to figure this out. Unfortunately, actually, uh, Probably, and I could give you lots of examples of that, but there's one example I think is worth sharing because it's so over the top, and I think it, it's helpful. In 1988, there was a man named Edgar C. Weisnott uh, who wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. What date is it? Oh, yeah, okay, cool. Um, that predicted the return of uh, Christ would happen during the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah, somewhere between September 11th and September 13th, 1988. Many evangelicals um, at the time took that very seriously, and I was too young to uh, really know or care about this stuff, but um, <clears throat> a lot of people apparently took this pretty seriously. In fact, the Trinity Broadcasting Network which you should just not watch, um, actually uh, interrupted their regular programming in order to help Christians prepare for the rapture. So when that didn't happen um, in 1988, this guy, uh, this guy Edgar, uh, shifted the date to October 3rd when September 13th passed. And then when that date didn't work, he told Christianity Today, uh, the, the magazine, uh, that he said, quote, the evidence is all over the place that it's going, the rapture is going to be in a few weeks. He uh, was also quoted as saying, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. That, yikes. Uh, that didn't age well. Um, <clears throat> when the rapture didn't occur in 1988, he continued to predict dates in 89 then 93, and then 94, 
Uh, and then the silver lining in all of this is that by 1994, pretty much everybody wrote him off as a, as a quack. So that's good. Took a couple decades too long to write this guy off, but, or a decade or so too long, but whatever. Um, eventually people were like, okay, I don't think you know what you're talking about. Uh, so that's one example. Now, there are hundreds of others ex- of examples throughout history of people predicting the return of Christ claiming that they have some secret knowledge of when these things are going to happen. And unfortunately, it swindles people. It harms people. People have been ruined financially by being deceived into these things. And, uh, and I think we need to just recognize what the Bible says, which is concerning times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. Paul is going, this is on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know. In fact, Paul doesn't know. Uh, Jesus says that only the Father knows, not the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Now, I think nor the Son probably was referencing Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus is probably aware now in heaven of these things, but in that moment, he was unaware as well. And so... um, I, th- I think we, we need to put into perspective the, the craziness around this subject and how we, we've, just, we've lost our minds in some ways because we want to know what we don't need to know. Jesus says this same thing to his disciples in Matthew 24. I think it's worth looking at this passage just very, very briefly. Um, we won't look at all of it, of course, but I think it ties in well to this. Um, so, In Matthew 24, Jesus' disciples are in Jerusalem with him, admiring the temple. They're admiring how beautiful the temple is. Jesus left the temple and was going away in verse 1 when the disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But Jesus answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? So the disciples asked Jesus straight up, you said that the temple is going to be destroyed. When's that going to happen? They're actually asking two different questions. Um, One is, when will the temple be destroyed? as you say it will. And then secondly, what will be the signs of your coming when you come in your glory at the end of the age? And Jesus replies, essentially, I'm not, we're not going to read all of this, but basically to summarize it, he, he replies that the temple would be demolished and that the disciples um, would, would ultimately live to see that day. And we know that they did. Uh, AD 70 was when that was fulfilled. Jesus' words came to fruition in AD 70 with this well-documented historical fact. The Romans ransacked Jerusalem in AD 70 and destroyed the temple, and it's never been rebuilt since then. The temple had been destroyed a number of other times, a couple times before that as well, um, but it's not yet been rebuilt since AD 70. But then Jesus transitions to talk to them about how they are to endure 
the difficulties or the tribulations of that time, of, of the time surrounding the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. However, it's important to know that Jesus does not answer their second question. I think this is where a lot of us get confused with these, this passage is we think that Jesus is actually answering both questions. He's not. He's only answering the question of what will happen when the temple is destroyed. And he doesn't answer the question about his second coming. Jesus does this often, actually, with his disciples. He doesn't answer the question that they ask. He answers the question that they should have asked. And so Jesus tells them that the day of his return will be unknown to them. It will be at an unknown hour. And he says this in verse 36. It says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. And so he's basically saying, you're asking the wrong question. Here's the answer to your question. You don't need to know. Jesus will come in a time unknown to us. But what Jesus is saying, essentially, through this passage is, be ready for it, because it can happen whenever. He's not telling his disciples exactly precisely when things will take place, but that they should be ready for them to take place. And that, that's really the point that Paul makes here as well. There's so many echoes uh, of this, of these two passages. But look at verse 2. So it says now, back in First Thessalonians 5, concerning the times and seasons, you have no need for anything to be written to you for or because you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. What, what, G, what Paul is saying is the same thing that Jesus is saying. We don't need to know precisely the moments of Jesus' return or even precisely all the events that take place around that return because he's going to come back. We know that. That's what we need to know. And he's going to come back at a time that is a surprise. And, and to the unbelieving, it will be a very unpleasant surprise, like a thief in the night. Paul is using this analogy of a thief in the night, and that's a bad thing, right? You don't want to wake up to a thief in your home. That is not referring to how we as Christians get to respond to the return of Christ, as Paul will articulate in the a little bit. He's talking about how unbelieving people will respond to Jesus' return. It will take them by surprise and it will be difficult. This is not something that they are expecting. And Jesus actually goes here too in chapter 24, uh, right after he tells his disciples that only the Father knows the day and the hour. He then says in verse 37, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So he uses, Jesus uses the analogy of Noah in the ark and is basically saying that the whole world 
besides Noah and his family, had no idea that this was happening. And when it happened, it took them all by surprise. And so the day of the Lord will come, and it'll come in a way that is not expected by those who don't believe in Jesus. It will come to us as one expected day, but not because we know precisely when. That's where Paul goes on. He says, um, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So he uses two analogies here. He uses the analogy of the thief in the night. He also uses the analogy of a pregnant woman. Now, I think that's helpful because the, the pregnant woman analogy, um, you, you know you're going to have a baby. You, in our day, in Paul's day, it was different. They didn't have a whole lot of the ultrasounds, right? They didn't have the, techno- the technology to predict. Uh, but even we don't have the perfect technology to predict the moment that labor starts. Uh, we know it's going to start at some point, roughly around this time, but we don't have all the details, right? And so Paul's using these analogies that th- this is going to come upon them and it's going to be uh, a bit of a surprise, but not something that we should be utterly unprepared for. If you're a pregnant woman, you know that you're, you're going to have a baby, and so you should be prepared for that. You may not know precisely when that baby will be born, but you know the baby's coming. And so Paul says in verse 4, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, because you are all children of the light, children of the day, for we are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So, so Paul is speaking to this, this church and to all of us Christians uh, in this way. He's saying, you don't need to know the time and season. You don't need to know that. But here's what you do need to know. You need to know Jesus is coming back and he can come back at any time. So, so just be prepared. Stay awake. Not, not in a sense of physically stay awake, but like be aware, be clear-headed. He's actually giving um, through these verses three things that we can do and should do in light of the fact that Jesus returns. One, he says we need to keep our heads clear and we need to keep our cool by just simply doing what he's called us to do, live in faith, in love, and in hope. That's what he says in verse, verse 8. It says, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober or clear-headed, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. He, he's basically going back uh, or talking about what he had said back in chapter 4, which was, hey, just like live a quiet life, mind your own affairs, work with your hands. This is in the same letter, right? He's, he's talking about just simply plug away, live your life, keep your head clear. Don't, don't be like crazy. Live your life as a Christian, 
Faith, love, and hope. These are the three things he mentions here. Faith, love, and the hope of salvation. Those are the things you have. Those are the things you need to carry you through life, regardless of what happens. If you do those things, if you trust in Jesus through faith, if you love him and one another, if you have your heart anchored to the hope of his salvation, then no matter what may come, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. We need to live lives of gospel-driven sanity is, is what we're trying to get at here. Don't run around like a crazy person screaming that the sky is falling. It doesn't help you and it doesn't help others. Just keep your head clear. Secondly, verse 9 and 10 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, that that means alive or dead at the coming of Christ, which we talked about last week, we might live with him. So we need to keep our heads clear, stay sober-minded, pursue faith, love, and hope. Here he's telling us, secondly, that we need to keep our heads up. Why? Because Jesus has saved us from any wrath that might come our way. In other words, we have nothing to lose. Whether we're alive or dead at his return, We have nothing to lose. Why? Because Jesus died for us to take away from us the wrath of God. The death of Christ is how God removed his wrath from us sinners. This is what Paul says to the Romans in chapter 5 of Romans verses 8 and 9. He says, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, made right with God through his blood, much more shall we be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. Our sin deserves wrath, but God in Christ took all of our wrath from us and placed it upon him as he died. And if we trust in Jesus, put our lives to his, then we are ultimately, all wrath is removed We have nothing to fear. Christ's return will not be bad news for us. It will be wonderful news because the fruition of our salvation will come into focus. But I think there's so much fear around it because we don't, according to, at least Paul seems to be drawing us to this, that we're afraid because we're not really believing the gospel. That God has not destined us for wrath but he has destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. We got to keep our hearts anchored to that. If that is true, then there is nothing that can harm us. Romans chapter 8 tells us this, right? that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And then as he concludes that chapter, he says, so nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need to keep our heads clear by living lives of simple faith and love and hope. We need to keep our heads up because Jesus has saved us from any wrath that could come.
And then lastly, we can do this. He tells us that in verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The third thing Paul tells us to do is to keep encouraging one another about the salvation that we have and the hope we have in Jesus. Those are the things that we should be concerning ourselves with. Paul says concerning times and seasons, you have nothing to be written to you. You don't need to know those things. But here's what you do need to know. You you need to know that you're called to live a life of faith, hope, and love. You're called to trust in Jesus so that the wrath of God can be taken from you and placed upon him. And you need to keep encouraging each other as you walk in the gospel together that we have hope in Jesus and we don't need to be afraid of what may come. Now, I know, now I know for us, um, many of us, um, the fear surrounding this subject isn't really ultimately about the return of Christ per se. I, I know for those who are afraid about when they talk about these things or when, when the subject of Christ's return comes up, it's not as much the return of Christ in itself that's fear-producing, but it's the events that surround that or the events we think will surround that that ultimately makes us fearful. This passage helps us with that. We are called to keep our heads and just plug away because no matter what may happen to our body, no matter what may happen to our, our world, at the end of the day, we're, we're Jesus's. We belong to him. And so we can just keep living life. We should just keep living life. We should keep plugging away towards him and towards one another. We don't need to be afraid. But I know some of us are, and I, I know that that's partly because of the sensationalism around this subject. There's a lot that has been said about the return of Christ that is just frankly made up or speculation. The reality is we live in a world that is difficult at all times and we don't need to like read into more than, than that. What we need to do is just say, hey, we live in a hard world. Bad things happen because of sin. So what do we do with that? Well, we keep our eyes on Jesus. We keep focused on his gospel. We keep reminding ourselves and encouraging one another that there's, there's nothing we can lose here. To live as Christ, to die as gain, Paul says. Keep preaching that to our hearts and to one another. There, there's a, a, a quotation from uh, C.S. Lewis that, I've, that I have found so helpful over the last couple of years living in the times we're living in. And um, this, this was written, uh, it was actually an article he wrote for a magazine um, and back in 1948. And it, the title of the article was called On Living in an Atomic Age. And, and, he, and I shared this probably six months ago with you guys in a sermon. I think I was preaching the same text, actually. Um, but but here's, here's what Lewis says. It's so helpful. He's writing in a context, 1948 would have been after World War II, 
And now you've got two superpowers, the US and Russia and nuclear armaments and lots of fear in the 19, late 1940s through the 1960s, early 60s uh, about nukes and the bomb and everybody, and some of you lived through those times as, uh, as kids or teenagers or whatever, but um, many of us didn't. But, but Lewis re really just helps us have some clarity on this. I think it's a, it's a little bit of a long quote, but I think it's worth reading it because it, it just kind of brings the temperature down when we understand what we're supposed to see in this. I'll read it. Here's what it says. Lewis writes, how are we to live in an atomic age? So of course he's writing to his context, but guess what? We're, we're kind of back to this, right? Like the talking heads on TV, you shouldn't listen to them probably, but the talking heads on TV, you know, they're, they're saying, you know, Russia's gonna drop the bomb any day now because, and they might, right? So how are we to live in that? Well, here's what he says. I'm tempted to reply why, as you would have lived in the 16th century, when the plague visited London almost every year. Or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat at night. Or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents or motor accidents. In other words, he says, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made, Lewis concludes here. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, <coughs> listening to music, playing tennis, chatting with our friends over a pint and a game of darts. Not huddled together, like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe could do that, but they don't need to dominate our minds. I think that's so helpful. Maybe you don't, I do. Um, we can get crazy about all the things we can't control. And the bottom line of this passage and the bottom line of what Lewis is trying to get at is we shouldn't freak out. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We know what we need to know. That when he returns, he will establish his kingdom and it will be a perfect world. And in the meantime, until that day comes, we just keep living the way he wants us to. By loving him and loving others by keeping our eyes on faith and hope and keep plugging away with our lives as he calls us to. And as Christians, if we're Christians in this room, his return is not a day to dread. 
it's a, it'll be a great day. It'll be a great day. The things that may happen before it, the, may, the things that may happen around it, that's beyond our pay grade. Let's, let's leave it at that. Let's be happy to know that Jesus died to take away the wrath of God from us. And that's what can keep our heads clear and our eyes focused. And, and as one more point of encouragement, don't believe the quacks who say they know when these things are going to happen. This guy from 1988 is obviously a crazy person. But anybody who claims they know the times or the seasons is a crazy person. Stop listening to them for your own good. Focus on what we need to know, which is that Jesus will come back and we need to be ready for that day. But we prepare ourselves for that day by just living the life he calls us to live and focused on the salvation that he offers us in Jesus Christ. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder of your word that in all the chaos of this world, all the confusion of this world, all the things that are happening that we don't understand and can't wrap our heads around and and don't know how this all adds up, would you just help us to rest in your word that you have not destined us for wrath but for salvation through Jesus who died for us? Would you give us clear heads Would you give us heads that are facing upward to you? Would you help us to not dread every terrible thing that may happen, but simply rest in knowing that you are good and you are God. You are sovereign over everything. And we can trust you because whether we live or die, we are yours. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Would you help us to rest in these things? And we pray this in your name. Amen.